rowdy bunch tonight. We've got a few more signing in and we'll get started. I've got about uh, 30 seconds till 6.30 by that big red clock up there that y'all know I never actually look at. <laughs> they put one back there, but it hasn't been very effective. There you go, just click 6.30. So um, I need to say something to start tonight. And I thought about it last uh, Wednesday night when we finished, but it, it just kind of popped in my head, and I didn't do it, didn't say anything. And then I thought about it all week. And uh, so tonight I need to tell you something so that you understand where I'm coming from. Some of you come to a Hebrews Bible study, and last Wednesday night, you might have left here and say, well, he, cut, he covered everything in the Bible. <laughs> Somebody said it was a Hebrews Bible study. So I went back and looked. L last Wednesday night, we, we did cover Hebrews chapter 1. By the way, there's 13 chapters. It's a 12-week study. I've got it sliced up. We're going to get through 13, Lord willing. But we covered Hebrews chapter 1, and we also went into John, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Romans, Luke, 1 John. So some of you might wonder, why do you do that? That's the only way I know how to do it. I don't know any other way. Because when I study, what happens is I'm convinced it's the Holy Spirit. He just opens up, and I see this puzzle. And first, the Hebrews first chapter is just a piece in the puzzle. And if I only talk about one piece in the puzzle, you'll never see the picture. You'll never see it. And I don't know why, just how God reveals it to me. And I'm not trying to act like that's unusual. I don't know. I don't know how that works for other people. But when I study Hebrews chapter 1, I see the piece of the puzzle surrounded by other parts. And what I do is I start working my way out until I run out of time. That's what I do. So tonight, just in case you're wondering, we're going to cover all of Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to be in Jeremiah and Nahum and Psalm and John and uh, John and Roman and Second Peter. That's how it works. So if you come here and you're thinking, well, you know what? I thought we were going to study Hebrews. You are. But you're going to widen out your view so that you'll understand this is 66 books inside one giant story. It's all the same story. It's not 66 different stories. It's all the same story. So I'm going to pray. Father, I ask you tonight to give us eyes to see. Give us ears that can hear and hearts that will receive, believe, and obey you. And never fall away. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 2 begins with a warning. Don't you love it when you open the Bible and there is a warning? Well, you got one tonight. The warning is about falling away or drifting away from the truth. And I'm going to tell you, you want two hot-button topics, here they are tonight. Uh, you got them, both. Here it is. There is much theological debate about the concept or even the, the theological possibility of falling away from salvation. To be saved and to be not saved. Is it possible to fall away? Can a person fall away from salvation can a person lose their salvation after once receiving their salvation now there are very dear friends of mine that disagree with me strongly on this position and they are still dear friends of mine there are brothers and sisters in christ that i call my brothers and my sisters that we absolutely disagree on this we are still brothers and sisters in christ we just happen to very strongly disagree you see, I take a very literal interpretation of Scripture. A very literal interpretation of Scripture. And in my definition of very literal, I answer the question this way. If it is by faith that you and I come to Christ, everybody listen, what is it that gets me salvation? Faith. Faith is I believe. I don't believe nothing. I believe something. What is it that I believe? Well, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But I got a second question. How do I know that Jesus, based on what do I believe he is what he says he is? Based on what? This. If it were not for this, how would you know what Jesus said? 
How would you know what he did? How would you know what he said you're supposed to do to find salvation? So when I say I have faith, I have faith in something. The something is the word of God that reveals the person of Christ. That's how I know who Christ is. The word of God has revealed Christ. Now, God, I believe, opens my eyes to see and to understand. And so that I might come to the knowledge of the truth through faith. And that is salvation. That is salvation. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. If I come to Christ through faith, if I come to Christ by believing in the Word, believing and receiving the Word is truth, what if later in my life I stop believing that? The theological question is this one. Then I've got to move on or I'll run out of time. The theological question is this. Do I, if, if I, believing is free will. If believing is free will, if believing is choosing with my free will to believe what I choose to believe is truth, do you think I lose that free will to believe after I receive Christ? Or do I retain that free will so that later, 10 years later, 20 years later, that which I chose to believe 20 years ago, I choose to no longer believe now? See, I believe I retain the free will. I'm going to answer the question. I believe I retain the free will. I came to faith in Christ by believing the Word of God that reveals salvation through Jesus. But I believe today I still retain that free will. I don't believe you're saved on Monday and lost on Tuesday and you're back in on Wednesday. That's stupid. But I and you have witnessed people who once believed and they don't believe anymore. Now here comes the circular logic. My very dear friends of mine would say, well, they never really believed. And then I say, but you told them they did. They never really had it. And I say, but you told them they had it when they confessed. So there's some circular logic in the argument. Tonight I want to read the Word of God. Not my opinion, not somebody else's opinion, because Hebrews chapter 2 talks about this issue. Can a person lose their salvation after once receiving that salvation? Listen, this is clear. I don't want anybody to be insecure by this concept. This is clear. Nothing can take you out of the hands of God. Amen? Nothing. There's no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and Satan can't say, hey, demon, go grab him. No, that's not how this works. If you came to Christ by your faith, the only way you could not retain that Christ salvation is that you did not believe. That which you chose to believe, you now refuse to believe. Now, you might say, well, I know people have done it. You do too. There are people who have done it. And you might say to me, well, they obviously never had it in the first place. To me, they did. And something happened. And the warning in chapter 2, listen, the warning in chapter 2 is don't you let this happen to you. Because it's real. Before I read this first section, let me ask you a question. Did Israel fall away? I know what somebody's going to say. Yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't do that anymore, do we? We're in the New Testament time of grace. You're only reading, this is one story. Listen, he's the same God. Did Israel fall away? And what happened when they did? Here we go, Hebrews chapter 10. So we must listen very carefully to the truth. I'm holding it up in the, in the air. We must listen very carefully to the truth. We have heard, or we may drift away from it. From what? The truth. For the message of God, I'm holding it up again. For the message of God delivered through angels has always stood firm. So here it comes. I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute, absolute truth on this planet. It has always stood firm. It is immovable. It is a rock. It doesn't matter what we think about it. It's still right there. It's truth. Absolute truth. It has always stood firm. And every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was what? what how did God deal with it? Punishment. And just in case you think, the New Living Translation, which is what we're using tonight. And by the way, that little two in NLT, it doesn't mean anything except in my computer it did something and it marks it as a two. Don't, don't worry about it. It's still NLT. Just in case you think the NLT is a loose translation, and it is a very loose translation. 
The NASB is not. So let me read it from the NASB. For this reason, we must pay closer, closer attention to what we have heard so that we won't drift away from it. NASB says the exact same thing. You must pay close attention to what you once heard. You must pay close attention to the message. How would we, in 2018, know what message he's talking about back then? You got a copy of it. You must pay close attention to the message or you would drift away. The idea of drift, notice the word. The idea of drift is a slow departure from the truth. It's not an all of a sudden event. It happens slowly. I meet very, very few people that I would say that their, their falling away was fast. It's slow. That's why when I see people falling out of church, and, and, and they're missing a little bit, and then they're missing a little bit more, and then they're missing a little bit more. The first thing I think, they're going into danger. They don't know they're going into danger. They're, they're starting to drift away. They're starting to depart from this truth. Let's make it clear. Drift away from what? The truth and the message of God delivered through angels. You got a copy of it. It's called the Word. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the modern American church is struggling with this issue? Yes, it is. Is the modern American church drifting away from the Word? Are church people, I'm not talking about pagan unbelievers, you can't drift away from something you've never had a hold of. Right? That's not drifting away, you just lost. They were lost and they are lost. But I'm talking about church people. Are, are, do American church people, are they struggling with drifting away from the Word? Yes, they are. It is an epidemic. God responds to this drift. I'm going to tell you, the warning is this. God responds to the drift. He's not going to ignore the drift. He responds. The Bible says in, in chapter 2, Hebrews 2, that every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was previously punished. God is rich in mercy, but he's also the God of justice. He loved Israel. There's no doubt about it. He loved Israel, but he could not let their rebellion and sin go unpunished. So what's he do? He responds to the drifting away. Now I want to go over to Jeremiah chapter 30. I want you to look what that looks like. For I am with you, God said to Israel, I am with you and I will save you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you. Well, I'm with you, Israel. But I scattered you, but I'm going to completely annihilate the nations that I scattered you to. What's that about? They're lost. They're covered in sin. They have no forgiveness of sins. They don't have any, any Yom Kippur. They don't have any Day of Atonement. They don't have any Passover. They don't have anything to make them right with God. So he says, you, Israel, fell away. And when you fell away, I scattered you among the pagans. And I'm going to completely destroy the pagans where I have scattered you, but I will not completely destroy you. Whoa. I will discipline you, but with justice, I cannot let you go unpunished. This verse, the next verse is from Nahum, which was a message to the ancient city of Nineveh, the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. You, do you think that's only the God of the Old Testament? Somebody lied to you. Well, why did Jesus come? Because if I don't get my guilt removed, if I don't get my sin removed, I have punishment in front of me. Every, all of mankind. It's, this is not something new. He says this, the Lord is slow to get angry, hallelujah, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and in the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. But that's all Old Testament stuff, right? No, let's go back to, let's go to the New Testament. Back to chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. So what makes you New Testament Christians? Because that's who he's talking about, right? What makes you think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation 
that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving what? Signs and wonders and miracles. What, what do you think? He walked on water. He healed the sick. He, he, he did all these. He raised the dead. God confirmed it by signs and wonders and various miracles. And how else? Gifts of the Holy Spirit. Whenever he chose. Who will escape the judgment of God? Who will escape the judgment of God? Salvation is the escape. And I'm going to tell you tonight, salvation is not falling away. It is to not drift away. Salvation is repenting, which is the opposite of drifting away. Repenting is turning to face God. It is the opposite of drifting away. What I said earlier, notice the word drifting. Drifting is a slow departure from God. You know what drifting really is? In this context, drifting is a slow turning your back toward the one you used to face. You used to face him. You used to be willing to look at him, to look at the light of his truth and stand in his presence. Confessing my sin, not making excuses for my sin, confessing my sin, repenting of my sin, coming clean with God, facing him. But this Drifting away is a slow departure in which I slowly, I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm turning my back to him, and I'm facing in a totally different direction. Repentance is turning back to face God. That's salvation. It's what it means. The turning around. God has offered salvation to mankind through Jesus. And God has confirmed Jesus' deity through signs and wonders. And here we go. And the Holy Spirit. Today, the Holy Spirit confirms that Jesus is who he says he is. Chapter 1 dealt with Jesus being high above the angels. Chapter 1, what did we talk about last week? He is superior to the angels in every way. He is sovereign over everything. He was the Son before the creation of the world. Before the creation. Chapter 1 dealt with Jesus being high, so high and exhausted, exalted. What will it be like? So here's the question. What will it be like in the future world called salvation? If salvation is for those who receive Christ, what will it be like? For them there. Next verse, verse 5. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world. I don't know what visions you ever had of heaven or the new earth, the presence of God. It is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, What are the what are people? What are people, us, human beings, what are people that you, God, should think of them or the Son of Man that you should care for them? And yet you made them, who's he talking about? People. God, you made people only a little lower than the angels and crowned people with glory and honor. The future world of our salvation will not be controlled by angels. Do you know that? Some of you might be surprised by that. Even though, even though there will be angels in the future world, they are not the ones who will control the future world. What, what do we call the future world? Uh, I like to call it the afterlife. After this life is over, there's another life. Man will have dominion. Man will have dominion in the future world. Under the authority, listen, under the authority of the second Adam. The last Adam, his name is Jesus. The first Adam had dominion over the original earth, right? Isn't that what Genesis says? The first Adam had dominion over the original earth, and the last Adam will have dominion over the new earth, and those who have connected themselves to Christ will reign with him in the future world. This is the paradox. Man is nothing. In our origin... In our flesh, we are nothing. What happens to us when we die? We turn to dust. 
We become nothing. In our original condition, we are nothing. We turn to dust. And yet, man is everything to God. We are nothing and we are everything. We are nothing in our original condition. In our fallen state, we are nothing but dust that he puts his breath into for a season. And yet he is, we are everything to him. We are the equivalent value cost of his only begotten son. Oh, that's how much he loves us. That's what he would pay to retain us, to regain us, to reconcile us to himself. The Hebrew writer, what I just read to you up in verse 6, is actually quoting Psalms chapter 8. He's quoting the Old Testament Psalm. So let's go to the Old Testament Psalm. Let's read what the Hebrew writer is quoting. Psalms 8, verse 3. When I look at the night sky and see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. Here's his question. When I look up there and I see all that, because it happens to me too. I bet it happens to you. When you look at the vast expanse of the heaven, you say, what are people that you should think about us? How big must we look to you from up there? You know, we must be like little ants, like teeny little things. What are people that you should think about them? Mere mortals that you should care for us. And yet you made us, you know, I'm a people, yet you made us only a little lower than God and crowned us people with glory and honor. You gave us people charge of everything you made, putting all things under people's authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. You know, the psalmist is amazed that in the middle of all of the incredible God's creation, he even cares about us. Why does he care? Do you see it? See, God sees the future world. There's a world past this one. Past the fallen, sin-filled, death, mortal land we live in where things die. There's another world coming. And I'm going to ask you, who will have dominion over this next world? It won't be angels. Now, this next section in Hebrews puts it all together. Verse 8. You gave them people. We're talking about people, right? Humans. Mortal flesh. You gave them authority over all things. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things under their authority. Now, pause. Pause for a moment. Does it look like we've got everything under control? Huh? Look around. We have not yet seen all things under their authority. It doesn't look like we're in total control right now. What we do see. So what can I see? If, if, if he's given us all authority over all of his creation, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us mortals, people, he is now crowned with glory and honor. That which you and I are looking forward to, he's already got it. That which is in the future world, he's already there. He's crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for who? Everyone. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring, here it comes, don't, don't miss this, children. He wants children. God through whom and by whom all things were made chose to bring many children into glory. And it is only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them, who? These children, into their salvation. Man was created a little lower than the angels, but with dominion over the earth. The angels didn't get dominion over the earth. He gave it to man. Jesus became a man and subjected was subjected to this lower 
than angels' position, at least for a while. Jesus then tasted death for all mankind. Through that sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus made a way for us to enter into the glory of God. He made a way for us to enter into the future world, into this afterlife where death is no more, and man operates in dominion of all of God's creation. Under the authority of Christ. By the way, let me say that. We don't become God. He still has dominion. We operate under his authority. Jesus' suffering made him our Savior, our perfect leader, leading us into salvation and into God's presence, listen, in the future world. Hebrews chapter 2 reveals the criteria and the environment of the future world. I told you last week, it's a prophetic book. It talks about the future world. Angels aren't going to be in charge. People are. There's not going to be any death there. Jesus is going to reign over people who are in charge of creation. This next verse explains how. If that is reserved for the children of God, how can we become the children of God? Verse 11. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, the ones he makes holy have the same father. This is a family affair. Now Jesus and the one, ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us, what? His brothers and sisters. For he said to God, Jesus the Son says to God the Father, what? I will proclaim your name. <laughs> I love this part. Jesus says to the Father, I will proclaim your name, Father, to my brothers and sisters, and I will praise you among the assembled people. You know what Jesus did when he was on earth? He, he proclaimed the name of the Father to his brothers and sisters. And anybody who became his brothers and sisters, guess what? We got the same father. That's family. If you have the same father, we have to be brothers and sisters. Right? That's how this thing works. You are not brothers or sisters with angels. In fact, I know some of you personally, you've never been very acquainted with angels. We are not brothers and sisters with angels, now or in the future. We are brothers, and, and, and angels are not equivalent to Christ. Do you see what he's doing? He's showing that God's creation of mankind is superior even to the angels in the future world. Angels will be servants of people in the future world. You're not going to serve them. God's created order is that people were his treasure. They were his children, to which, Hebrews 1, to which one of his angels did he ever say, today you have become my son? But he offered that to you. He offered it to me. Through his only begotten, he offered us the ability to call him Father, Abba. He didn't do that for angels. This is so powerful to understand what this future world is going to look like. Now, let's, let's connect Hebrews. Here we go. This is one of those little pieces of puzzle that you've got to spread out. Let's connect Hebrews to John chapter 1. Why? Because I want you to understand what it is and how you become a child of God. Can, is everybody God's child? Come on. I, I've said a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago I said, the, the, the common doctrinal misconception of our day is we're all God's children. No, you're not. Sorry. It's just not true. You can wish that, but it's not true. We're all God's creation. Yes. The only ones that will be God's children, listen, who have, can call Jesus their brother. You got to get Jesus. You can't get to the Father without becoming the brother of Jesus or sister of Jesus. Doesn't happen. You're in the wrong family tree. It's not going to end good. you got to get Jesus as your brother. And when you get Jesus as your brother, then automatically you get God as your father. This is how it works. So let's go to John. I want to read it to you. 
I think the Hebrew writer and John must have talked to each other. He came, Jesus, came into the very world he created. That's what? That's Hebrews chapter 1, right? He came to the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. You know why? You know why? Because he looked like us. He didn't look like a creator, did he? He looked like one of us. He came to his own people. Now, who's that? That's the Jews, right? Came to Israel. And even Israel rejected him. But to all who believed him, here comes faith. Here comes faith. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to do what? Say it with me. To become the children of God. Somebody say hallelujah. This is it. This is it right here. He came into the world he created, and the world says, you can't be it. And he came to his own people, and they said, you can't be it. And then he opened the door to anyone who believed and called upon his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. You know, guess what? Anybody can do that. But very few will. It's against our nature. He gave the right to become a children of God. Then he describes it. They're reborn. What did he tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. Right? They're reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word. So how did he pull it off? How did he pull this thing off? The Creator. The Word became human. Here you go. That's what I think. The Word became human. He became a man. And he made his home in our neighborhood called Earth. He made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And if you've seen Jesus, if you met this brother, you've seen the glory of the Father. The glory of God's only Son. Through. You see the glory of the Father through the Son. So the Word became human. Why? Can you explain it? The one that created the world entered the world as one of us. Can you explain it? Confused yet? Wait till you read the next verse. Verse 13. Jesus also said, I will put my trust in Him. Jesus was fully man and yet fully God. And Jesus also said, I will put my trust in Him. This man, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, says, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and whom? I and the children God has given me. God's given Jesus, brothers and sisters. God gave, Je listen, God gave Jesus, brothers and sisters. I hope that's every one of you in this room tonight. You're his brothers and sisters. Now let me read it again. Jesus said, I will put my trust in the Father. That is, I and whom? Who's going who's to join him and put trust in the Father? I and the children God has given me. Now that brings us our second theological point of the night. Election and choosing. Election. The children God has given me, are they chosen? Israel was chosen. Are they elected before the foundations of the earth? Do you have free will? Is it preordained? Is it predestined? Some of you make it, some of you won't. Sorry about your luck. Wow, we get two hot topics in one night. Let's get them over with and we'll move on. First, let's focus on Jesus saying, I will put my trust in him. This is a quote from Isaiah. Jesus, you know what's amazing to me is that preacher here a while back said that the, the Old Testament is a stumbling block to the gospel. I wonder if he ever read it. Because you know what Jesus is doing right here? Or the Hebrew writer is referring to Jesus quoting the Old Testament. How many times does Jesus quote the Old Testament? I think he found it quite relevant. Not a stumbling block, but a pathway to truth. He's quoting the, the, the Hebrew writer is quoting Isaiah 
who also put his trust in God and delivered God's message to the people in the midst of a time when there was also a great drifting away. If you know the story of Isaiah at Mount Carmel, what was the deal? The entire nation has drifted away. Isaiah thinks, uh, excuse me, uh, Elijah thinks everything is just falling apart. And, and in these examples, Elijah, Isaiah, it's a time in which it looks like everything's falling apart. And yet, I will put my trust in you. I will put my trust in you. Secondly, I and the children God has given me. I and the children God has given me. So, what if, what's this thing about election? The children God has given me. Is free will yours? Or is, do you have free will? That's another way to put it. Let's go to John chapter 6. This happens twice in the Gospel of John. I'm only going to read one of them, I think. For no one can come to me. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day I will raise them up. What, what did you say? No one can come to me. Jesus says, no one's going to come to me by faith. No one's going to come and be able to see that I am the Son of God unless the Father draws them to me, brings them to me. And Jesus says what? He says, I am the and the children you have given me. How does God call us? So here comes the question. And here's where a lot of people stop when they should keep going. The question is, how does God call people? No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. So how does God draw them? Here comes the real question. How does God do it? Let me ask you, ask you, how did he do it to you? How did he draw you? Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. What about the ones that didn't? But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, what are we saved by? Before I read it, what saves us? Faith. Saving faith. Consequently, faith comes from something. Right? Faith is based on something. Faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing what? The message. What message? What message? Faith comes from hearing. Well, faith comes from hearing about Jesus. Well, how did you hear about Jesus? Well, some preacher told me. Some teacher told me. Some believer told me. How did they hear? <coughs> how did they hear? Well, someone told them. How'd they hear? How we all got the same story? There's a book. There's a book. In this book, I believe there's a message. Faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the Word of Christ. It's called the Bible. What about, so here comes the theological question. What about after I hear the message? So if faith comes by hearing, okay, let's say, for example, I heard and I believed. What happens after I hear the message? I receive the call of God. What is my part? Do I have a part? Some people believe you don't have a part. It's preordained. Some people believe that it's just God's already got this worked out. You're elected or you're not elected. You're in, you're not in. But you don't own until you get to the finish line. I guess at that point it's too late. What is my part? What is your part? God's part is the grace that offers us the call. Right? He didn't have to give you a call. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him, right? So, you're all in the church tonight. We're all in a Bible study tonight. So, obviously, somebody called you, right? And, and you're hearing a message out of the book that we call the Word of God. So, what's your part? Do you have a part? God's part is the grace that offers the call. The message of Christ is that of God's grace. But what is my part in this election? Do I have a part? I believe yes, 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 yes. You and I have a part. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, my brothers, P 
Peter's calling them brothers, right? That's believers. Be all the more eager to make your calling and your election. Who's calling? God's calling. Whose election? God's election. Make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, what? You will never fall, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to 2 Peter, make these things, uh, you'll never fall if you do these things. What are these things? Faith in the Word and obedience to the Word and remain faithful. I didn't have time to put all that in there. Faith in, if you do these things, you will never fall away. What? Faith in the Word. You stand on this thing. If everybody around you starts running off of it, you don't move. If everybody around you says, well, that, we can use this and this, but you've got to throw the other part away. Stand on the Word. Stand on the Word. Hear the call, obey the call, don't drift away from the call. That's my part. I'm going to make it clear tonight. If you don't hear anything I say tonight, I want you to understand something. What's my part in this salvation? God's part's done. He's finished. Jesus on the cross, what? It is finished. He's finished. Everything he needed to do, he did. My part. He, he, to offer the grace of God to the world, he's done that. It's a gift. It's sitting there. You've got to pick it up by faith. But my part is this, to hear the call. To receive the call. To obey the call. And don't drift away. Now, the summary of all the above, verse 14 and 15. <coughs> because, because God's children are human beings. They're not angels. I don't want you to read over They're not angels. <coughs> when did God ever say to an angel, you're going to be my child? Didn't happen. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he, the Son of God, die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil. You mean the devil's got power? Yeah, he does. Why? I don't know, but he does. Only by dying could Jesus break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to what? The fear of dying. The devil has the power of death. Do you know that? In his, he, he owns the power of death. It's a mystery to me. I'm not going to act like I understand that. I don't. He has, retains the power of death, at least for a while. Death is a great power. And no flesh and blood person can defeat this awesome power of death on their own. Any flesh and blood mortal comes against Satan's power of death, you'll die. You can't beat him. On your own, you can't win. He has the great power of death. Death has two powers. First, there's the power of death itself. It is when you stop breathing. You're mortal. I'm mortal. When you stop breathing, death comes. But there's a second power of death. The fear of death is also paralyzing. Preventing people to fully experience life. I know a whole lot of people that live their life so paralyzed by fear that they never really live their life. Because they're paralyzed by the fear of death. One of the things Jesus did for us is he broke the curse of death. And if you say you believe in Je Jesus, you've got to believe in the resurrection. And if you believe in the resurrection, death has already been conquered for you. You might... You might fall over and stop breathing but your soul will be transported to Abraham's side by angels you cannot die so what are you afraid of what are you afraid of and I know it's real I'm not trying to minimize this fear of death thing but in the middle of the fear what do we have we have faith we have this faith What's David's famous psalm? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And you are bigger than death. The devil has the power of both. And Jesus has the power to break both of them. Jesus became death so that he might have the power to defeat death. 
And by the way, Jesus was not afraid to die. So if he's our pattern and if he lives inside of me, guess what? You've got to overcome the fear of death. You must overcome this. You've got to look death in the eye and say, Jesus. You just look it in the eye and say, Jesus. Because if Satan has the power, I know one who's got more power. And he didn't just say it, did he? He proved it. He goes to four-day dead Lazarus' grave and says, Come out! Satan can't hold you when I show up. Come out. And then he goes to the grave himself and he walks out. He doesn't just talk. He does it. He proves to the entire world he has the power over death. And if he lives inside of me, if the Holy Spirit is inside of me, the same power that... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the same power... The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in me. It's in me. It's in you. It's in you. Get your head up, church. Get your head up. You and I have the same promise of the resurrection if we come to faith in Christ and we don't drift away. Believing in the end that which we believed in the beginning. What? Death is defeated. Let me prove it to you. Jesus, in these following scriptures, John 6, 50, Jesus says, anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Did he mean never? Uh, he mean never. He meant never. What, what is death? Well, let's, let's be practical, okay? Because you can say, well, I went to a funeral last week, and they were a believer, and they were dead. What is death? Their tent died. They did not die. One of these days, they're going to get a new tent, and they're going to put God's going to put their soul, which is who they are, in a new tent. It's going to be glorious, and they're going to live in the future world under the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? Don't don't say you come to Christ and you reject all that, because this is the message of Christ. This is his message. That's why God loved the world so much that he didn't want anybody to perish, right? John 8, 51. I, Jesus again says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teachings will never die. Well, what if you don't obey his teachings? Well, you don't really believe in him. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus told her, he's talking to Martha in the graveyard. I'm the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even after they die, right? Even after you put you in the box and put the box in the ground. Yeah, even after that. Listen to what he says. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. How can you live after dying? Because you didn't really die. And anyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. What? This is the announcement of what the future holds. It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, Satan, has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, the believers on the earth, and they defeated Satan by how? Three things. The blood of the Lamb, and by a word of their testimony. And listen, listen, listen. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. You know why? Because they knew if you fell down dead, you'd rise up. They did not love their life so much they were afraid to die. God didn't do any of this for angels. That's the part that really gets me in chapter 2. See, I always looked at angels as like upper crust. I'm not talking about you angels, okay? I need you. But he didn't do any of this for angels. Never once did he look at an angel and say, today you will be my son or daughter. He did it for us. He did it for us. Verse 16, we also know that Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Jesus came first, but don't, 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 miss, don't mess up the order. There is an order. Jesus came first to help the descendants of Abraham. Romans 1, 16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work. 
saving, saving everyone, right? The worldwide. Everyone who believes. The Jews first. Don't you mess up this order. And don't you talk about this order. Listen, God has a covenant with these people. To the Jews first. And also to the Gentiles. Romans 2, 9. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. For the Jew first. You might say, well, they got in trouble before we did. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. Guess what? They got trouble first for all who do good. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Colossians 1.26, this message was kept secret for centuries. I think about the Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. I'm going to tell you what, it's a mind-blowing mystery to me. If I think about the Gentiles, in the, you, know, you know what hope a Gentile had in the Old Testament? You had to convert to Judaism. That's it. And the likelihood of you being able to do that was pretty much nothing. I want you to experience the reality of the church age. Do you understand what God has done for you? It's not in the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it's been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. What is the secret? Christ lives inside of you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. You, you want insurance? You want something that's 100% cannot fail? It's Jesus. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. So here's the conclusion. God's justice requires a sacrifice. If I'm going to finish chapter 2, you've got to understand, God's justice requires a sacrifice. Not just any sacrifice, it requires a perfect sacrifice. And none of us had one. He could look around the whole world and there wasn't a perfect sacrifice on the whole planet. That means we're all lost, right? He knew that we would never be able to reach him. So he reached down to us. God became a man. Here we go, verse 17. Therefore it was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect, every respect like us. His brothers and sisters. So that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And then, if he was like us in every way, if he could assume the role of intercessor between man and God, and then he could offer a sacrifice that would be able to take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So I want you to think about this tonight as we wrap this thing up. In every way, he's like us. It's just, it's just he is fully God on this side, and yet he's fully man. Fully man. So, Nobody in this room, nobody on earth could ever look at Jesus and say, you don't understand what it's like. Because he'd look at you and say, you're wrong, buddy. You're wrong. He suffered. He was rejected. He felt pain. He felt loss. He experienced death. He was like us in every way. And only by becoming like us in every way could he become a sacrifice sufficient to meet God's justice for all mankind. It had to be a man. It had to be one of us. But it had to be one of us that was perfect. And here's the thing. Here's one of these moments of all the billions of people that ever lived on planet Earth. Okay? This is one of those light bulb moments for me. Of all the billions of people that ever lived on planet Earth, there's only two whose father was not a man. And there's only one. And there's only one whose daddy's 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 daddy go all the way back. 
isn't Adam. Only one. That made him not just fully man. He's also fully God. Because his mother was a woman, regular human flesh, but his father's not. So he became the perfect sacrifice because he's the only one that can be the Son of Man and the Son of God in the same person. And he became that way what? Then he could offer a sacrifice. Then he becomes this perfect qualified high priest. Then what happened this past week on Yom Kippur? What, happened in, in, what, what happens in the Jewish festival Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. This high priest, listen, this is so powerful. One time a year, one time a year under the Old Testament law, one time a year the Jewish high priest, one guy, would have to purify himself and he would take the blood of, a, of, a, of an animal, the blood of a lamb, and he would walk into the most holy place and he would place the blood of the lamb on the altar, on the, on the most holy place, on the, on the throne of God. He would place the blood of the lamb on the throne. He could only go in there once a year and it was to pay for the sins of the people. And then he had to get out. And for one year, God says, I will count your sin as nothing for one year. One year later, he had to do it all again on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But he had to be one of the people that was set apart. Jesus became one of us. And look at, look at what it says. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. But he didn't have to go in there year after year after year. You know why? Because his sacrifice was perfect. It paid for everybody. He is our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He is right now, this moment, interceding between you and I before the Father. And if you see the Father in the future without Jesus between you and Him, you are lost. You are lost. That's what it means. See, when I see God, when I one day meet God, through death or through the call in the last day, I got one chance, is that Jesus looks at the Father and says, He's with me. He's with me. That's my brother. That's my sister. They're with me. They're the ones you gave me. And they heard the message, and they believed the message, and they received the message, and they lived the message, and they never drifted away from the message of their whole life. Yeah, they had days that they got messed up, and every time they realized that they had got messed up, they turned back around and faced God. They turned back around and faced God and said, Lord, have mercy upon me. So, let me conclude. Can a person fall away? Israel did. Israel did. What about election? What about election? I'll ask you a question to answer the question. Did you hear the message? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Did you hear the message? You've been elected. You've been elected. What you do with it is going to be on you. I want one last thing. I want you to go back to the first page, and I want you to go to verse 3 at the bottom. Back to the page 1. Look at the bottom, Hebrews 2, verse 3. And let's let this be our last word tonight. What makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation? Can we fall away? What makes you think you can escape if you ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and delivered to those, and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? What makes us think, who told us that we could escape? Without the message. Without the, what makes, you know, this idea everybody goes to heaven? It's just not true. In fact, Jesus himself said only a few will go. Why? They refuse to believe. Do you believe? You're elected. Don't drift away. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this powerful book. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that shows us not just one piece of the puzzle, but you show how the, you're building this incredible picture in the future world where brothers and sisters of Christ will live with the Father in glorified new eternal flesh. 
in a place so marvelous our minds cannot fathom with angels at our side singing songs of glory about your grace. Father, I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain your church, that we would not drift away, and that your angels would protect us from the evil one, and that, Father, your word would be what we stand upon until that last day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.